2: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that brings you all the news you need, and more, which you don't need and don't really want. And then all that excess news goes to waste when it could have gone to some poor kid in some part of the world where they don't get news and are disturbingly content. I'm and Duyeb and the results of the general election in the Republic of Ireland show that the country is on a progressive streak. Same-sex marriage, legalising abortions and now, in 2020, Irish citizens have overwhelmingly voted in favour of having a three-way. Actually, the only ones who've really been screwed hard this election are the two parties who for nearly a century have passed power between them like irresponsible electricians. Centre-right parties Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are currently, as more than half the seats have been counted, in second and third place, as it seems after one crashed the economy and the other pushed austerity measures through Ireland, voters have now decided the best place to make cuts is with their seat share. In first place, left-wing Republican party Sinn Féin, showing how times change. I mean, once they had to be overdubbed by an actor on TV, now they have the voice of Ireland's youth instead. Polls show Sinn Féin leading all age groups under 65, voters not put off by opponents' claims that the party is still affiliated with the IRA. Is it that young people don't remember the troubles, or is it that it's largely made redundant by over 200 people in Ireland dying of homelessness in the last four years? Under Finnegan's leadership, if anything, more balaclavas might have actually saved lives. But Sinn Féin in 2020, led by Kathy Bates' most famous role, Mary Lou Macdonald, have promised rent freezes, a big public house building programme – that's social housing, by the way, not pubs, there's already loads of those – and they were pro-immigration, which helped their campaign as only 1% of Irish people thought immigration was an issue. Of course, you can't have the Irish be anti-immigration as they're always in need of people to head to them in order to make up for all their citizens that have fucked off elsewhere. Incumbent Taoiseach and rejected Arden claymation character Leo Vradka had aimed to rally support for his party Finnegale by his supposedly tough stance in the Brexit negotiations, but absolutely no one really gave a fuck. As let's face it, for Ireland, Brexit has just been an exciting time where they've got to see the Conservatives cause violent divisions to their own country for once. Both the NFL and Fine Gael have said they wouldn't go into coalition with Sinn Féin and MacDonald has said her party have reached out to smaller left-wing parties such as the Greens and Labour to see if they can form a government without the two former biggest parties. So can Sinn Féin unite Ireland? Will the Republic end up like the North with a dysfunctional power-sharing agreement? Or will there be another election? One thing is for sure, and that's that the two-party system in Ireland is over. And based on my visits there, it definitely suits them to have a lot more parties than that, going on for days and days and days. While Ireland's parties look to build political bridges, in Britain, Prime Minister and, look, there's some sort of pupae living in that torn sofa, Boris Johnson is still insisting that an actual bridge should be built in the sea between Northern Ireland and Scotland, because it's no longer just disbeliefs that he wants to waste money suspending. It's already being called the Boris Bridge, which means it'll probably bend in whichever direction it thinks is popular that day. As mentioned before many times on this podcast, Johnson is the nemesis of bridges, both metaphorical and physical arch-nemesis, if you like. Even without his history of bridge failures, it should be obvious that infrastructure isn't his thing when Johnson regularly struggles to lay the solid foundations of any clear political strategy. Downing Street are insisting that this bridge, potentially costing up to £20 billion, could happen. In yet another case of someone who really should have been told no far more as a child. This is where British political reality currently lies, where broadband for everyone or planting lots of trees was treated as delusions of grandeur, but spending a shedload of money trying to plop a road on top of turbulent waters and unexploded World War II munitions is somehow a perfectly feasible idea. The thing is, Johnson gets bridges, he's probably been on one, has probably made several out of egg boxes for his cardboard model buses to drive over, he works with Conservative Andrew Bridgen, who has one in his name, but also looks like he lives under one and scares children, so that all makes sense to him. Sadly, according to recently sacked President of the UN Climate Change Conference and someone who definitely says it's wine o'clock nearly every night, Claire Perry O'Neill, she revealed that Boris doesn't really get climate change. So that's bridges, but not climate change. But how's he meant to? He spent his life going from Eton to the Bullingdon Club in Oxford to the Conservative Party and the Telegraph, so how's Johnson meant to have any idea what a non-toxic atmosphere is like? At the COP26 launch, Johnson claimed that this is the year we will have the courage to create a cleaner and greener future for our children and grandchildren. And that's quite a bold claim from a man whose party is deporting 50 people by plane to Jamaica, separating them from their families in the UK. I mean, that's unnecessary pollution and the destruction of families in one, which is the exact opposite of helping kids. You might as well say you're investing in their future by burning all their schoolbooks in a coal fire or firing all the fruit and veg into space. A leaked draft of the review into the Windrush scandal said that the government should consider ending the deportation of foreign-born offenders who came to the UK as children. I mean, it's a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? We're basically saying to other countries, well, it was our system that failed them, so you deal with it. Most of those on the flight this week have only been convicted for minor offences and have no friends or relatives in Jamaica, so this is less a well thought through criminal punishment plan and more a lazy idea someone got after watching one of the many celebrity shows where people get booted off a plane to try and survive. Forgetting that it's only entertaining to us because those people have consented to that happening and all of those celebrities definitely deserve it. Shitter superhero ever, Suela Braverman, accused Labour of shrill virtue signalling and faux outrage by objecting to the deportations and MP and NEC, Kevin Foster, said that they'd completely lost the plot. But if, as they say, these deportations are necessary because some of those that will be on board had committed such crimes as drug offences, then why hasn't Chancellor of the Duchy and meat bagpipe Michael Gove been catapulted to Aberdeen yet? The one this week is the second immigration removal charter flight to the Caribbean this year, even though they were meant to be paused after the Windrush scandal was exposed in 2018. The report into the scandal is titled Lessons Learned, but sadly it seems that the only one that was, was if the government released some bullshit about bridges, then no one will notice them just deport a load of black people for no reason this time around. Meanwhile, Shamima Begum, who was groomed age 15 to leave the UK and join ISIS, has lost her appeal against the government's decision to strip her of her UK citizenship, probably on account of her views not fitting in with their fundamental hostile regime, which involves forcing the country to go along with their extreme beliefs. The Special Immigration Appeals Commission said that Ms Begum could get citizenship from Bangladesh, as she is of there by descent. Yes, that's how the UK now gets away with the international crime of making someone stateless, by saying that if your grandparents are from somewhere, then so are you. On the plus side, this means all we have to do now is find Boris Johnson guilty of some minor criminal activity, and finally the US can have him back. The Culture Secretary, Baroness and person who meerkats would tell to chill the fuck out, Nicky Morgan, has launched a consultation on whether non-payment of the TV licence should stay a criminal offence, as otherwise they'd need a lot more planes ready and it's getting really costly. She told the BBC that they need to change with the Times if they want to stay relevant, just like she's done by throwing away all of her principles in order to get a peerage. Apparently, the enforcement of the licence fee punishes the most vulnerable, said Morgan, and that's not fair of the BBC to do that, as it's the government's job. The licence fee is going up by £3, meaning it'll cost everyone 43p a day to have the entire range of BBC services, all the way from CBeebies, which, look, I'd gladly pay my entire wage to because it means I can quietly cry into my coffee at 5.30am while my daughter watches it on the iPlayer, all the way to radio services, including Radio 3, for when you need to hear the distant sounds of something throwing pebbles at a shed as someone else plays a recorder the wrong way round, all the way to BBC News, which fulfils all your needs for a channel that keeps confusing black female LMPs with each other because they really aren't even trying. I joke, but based on the US system, the alternative to the BBC would be paying even more for even less of that, which would be even less impartial and throw in an ad break every time someone took a breath for some sort of reconstituted animal part squished into different satanic symbols and with a cheesy topping made entirely with E numbers. Luckily, Morgan has announced a simple payment plan to help those struggling to pay the licence fee, something that happens when your universal credit isn't paid on time, your zero-hours job gives you no work, or the government forcing to implement the BBC licence fee themselves now means that they can't afford to scrap it for over 75s anymore. I do wonder just how much money would be saved if the Conservatives opted for preventative rather than reactive strategies and just stopped doing anything at all. Over in Oppositionville, the Labour leadership has got, well, like all other politics, as the campaign of favourite to win and what if Beavis and Butthead had a kid, Sir Keir Starmer, was accused of data scraping, which for someone who looks like he escaped from a 90s virtual reality game sounds quite painful. These allegations only appeared after Starmer's team accused background extra from Bing, Rebecca Long-Bailey and her team of a data protection breach. The Information Commissioner is looking into all these allegations and the Labour Party have written to Starmer telling him that he has obligations under the law, which sounds like a slam considering he was a defence lawyer and makes it seem like the party, who are meant to be neutral, are backing Long Bailey. But maybe it's a smart plan for them, because she said that she'll back all strikes, no questions asked, so under her leadership they could plan one for every week in the summer and avoid doing any work while getting a tan and Rebecca would have to approve. Shadow Culture Secretary and the only person who went from roles in EastEnders and Casualty to a career as an MP, which is even more depressing and full of things real people would definitely never say, Tracy Brabin, she received a lot of sexist criticism for wearing an off-the-shoulder dress in the commons, with many saying she was dressed inappropriately because they live in Victorian Britain. It's ridiculous to be upset by a female MP showing her shoulder when so many of the male ones in the commons wear things that allow them to speak out of their arse. In the US, president and face swap between a Pekingese dog and some overheated silicon sealant, Donald Trump, avoided impeachment by a Senate vote of 52 to 48, because one day we'll find out that that code is an ancient demonic curse symbol or the coding that causes a glitch in the matrix. All the Democrats voted to impeach Trump, which is unsurprising, but so did Republican and generic politician from a cartoon, Mitt Romney. Romney's most well-known for being pro-life except when it comes to saving the planet, being anti-welfare, anti-same-sex marriage, once leaving his dog on the roof of a car for a 12-hour drive and talking about having binders full of women, which as a Mormon is probably what he needs to have to ascend or something. But now he's being hailed by the Democrats for having some conviction. While the President and his own party have said that Romney used religion as a crutch, but I guess that is what happens when the US healthcare system charges so damn much for those things. During his State of Union address, Trump praised himself for the great American comeback, though no one is sure if he meant in terms of returning the country to its glory or his taking of the country from behind, blowing his load all over it and leaving. He claimed lots of things about healthcare and the economy that just aren't in the slightest bit true, but all of that was overshadowed by Speaker of the House and Judge Judy But Real, Nancy Pelosi, who tore up her copy of the speech while standing behind the President, saying after that it was a manifesto of mistruths, and I guess that is one very effective way to rip apart his policies. Trump said what she did was illegal as it was an official document but unsurprisingly it wasn't illegal and he was wrong. Still, I think it might be worth all of us agreeing with him on this as it might stop him pushing through a policy of book burning if he wins a second term. And the Democratic Iowa caucus, which is like a couscous but much less palatable and takes even longer to digest, finally after three days declared, what if there was a vampire who was bitten as a child but is actually also 700 years old at the same time, Pete Buttigieg as winner and Al Bernie Sanders as second place. Over 100 precincts reported incorrect results, which is why it took so long to get them, meaning many think that just because Buttigieg gave $42,000 to the app that the voting was done through that it was some sort of conspiracy in his favour. There are many doubts that that's true and several are calling for a recap, but to be fair, a Democrat presidential candidate who can use computer programs to rig a vote so things work in their favour does feel like they might play Trump at their own game and have some hope of winning. Now, which candidate is going to step up a level and ask Putin for a hand in the next round? Lastly, SMP, MSP, Scottish Finance Secretary and man who has the sort of suspicious kind of shiny complexion like he spent hours licking his own face, Derek McKay, resigned just hours before the Scottish budget was to be announced after it was revealed that he'd sent a 16-year-old boy 270 messages via Facebook and Instagram. No one quite realised that was what he meant when previously McKay had been very vocal about wanting to get 16-year-olds involved in politics. Bodyguard of former Prime Minister and fleshlight David Cameron got in trouble after leaving a gun in an airplane toilet, which now means he's the second most careless fuckwit in his travelling party. And Prince Andrew has asked to defer his promotion to Admiral on his 60th birthday later this month, but the date will still be marked by the ringing of the bells at Westminster Abbey, probably like some sort of alarm system to warn any young women to stay indoors for their own safety. The Prince has personally delivered a message to China on behalf of the Queen and will next be asked to personally deliver a message to the war zone in Yemen and then wherever it is that Hungry Tigers might be. It is risky sending Prince Andrew to an area where the coronavirus is, though, as parasites just tend to help spread diseases. What's new, Parpol crew? Uh, How exciting was it that Parasite won loads of Oscars? Um, I just said Parasite in that last line. That's what it made me think of. Anyway, I was all like, I don't know why anyone gives a shit about the Oscars anymore. But then the best film, and it's so damn good, won lots, and I'm all happy about it. I'm really excited to see how Hollywood learned from a South Korean film winning loads of awards by no doubt doing a completely all-white US remake where Scarlett Johansson plays at least three of the roles. Uh, That is exactly what would happen. Um, I am a little bit croaky, uh, as you can probably tell from that intro. Uh, I've had a weekend of croakiness. Uh, sorry for any terrible Irish pronunciations. And geg Pete jig, butcher jig, butter Buttergeg, Buttered Egg, Butter buttergag, Butter jig. How do you say it? No, no one will ever know. Um, yeah, I've had cold and storm Kiara. Did you survive that? I'm not saying it was windy where I am, but there was a point where I looked outside the window and a man was taking his dog for a flight. Um, I was allowed to have the sleep-in on Sunday while my wife got up with the little one, but I couldn't have a sleep-in because the wind outside our shitty flat um, and all the creakiness of our shitty flat made it sound like a million souls were just screaming. I imagine uh, it's what it's like to be inside the head of Dominic Cummings. Um, Horrible. But aside from wind screaming and several American Beauty remakes happening outside, that's the plastic bag bit, not Kevin Spacey lifting weights as that would be really grim and I'd call the police, Um, we luckily didn't suffer. Uh, So I hope you didn't have any flooding or that sort of horror where you are Um, it's been pretty grim on the news some areas have been affected really really badly it's so terrible that flood defences were cut by the government a few years back and I sort of think the least they could do is send Boris out to help Uh, not that half mopping shit he did last year but you know more as kind of a human sandbag or something like that be useful um, welcome back to the podcast anyway, and hello to all you new lot that have joined after last week's episode with Paul DiGregorio. Um, I'm very pleased you're here to listen to me talking about windy soul screamings. And of course, um, I asked you last week if there's any more interesting way for me to say this. None of you replied, so here you go. Um, if you do enjoy the show, please do think about giving it a review on the podcast apps, telling other people, or just giving me all of your life savings at the ko-fi.com forward slash bro or patreon.com forward slash bro accounts. I mean, what else are you going to use your life savings? I mean, you may as well prop up my meagre existence because who needs a pension when you've got that feeling of goodwill to feed you up? Yum, yum. Goodwill. Tasty goodwill. No? OK, well, how about to buy me a coffee then? Thanks. That'd be great. Um, there's not much to tell this week, but thanks if you came to our Kids Politics show at the Pegasus Theatre in Oxford last Saturday. Um, it was a lot of fun, even if the main solutions to a problem of sharing sweets between too many people um, was just to fight for them. That's what lots of the kids said. One of them said it was fighting for them pretty much in the air, one of them on the ground. Uh, so we all think Oxford is full of brain boxes, but no, they just want to hit each other for sweets, which explains quite a lot. Um, the next two shows of How Does This Politics Thing Work then are at the Greenwich Theatre on Tuesday, February 18th at 2pm and the West End Centre in Aldershot on Friday 21st of Feb at 2.30pm, both in half term, when you don't know what else you're going to do with them, what are you can going to do with them, it's a whole week they're just around. You got to fill all that time. It's ridiculous. Um, and the show is suitable for all ages seven plus. Um, it's got none of the swears that I do on this show in it. Um, and I know seven plus is right because uh, there was a four year old at our show on Saturday, and she got quite scared when I yelled a lot. So I'm very sorry, uh, four year old. But you were warned. You were warned. It was on all the blurb. Um, on this week's show, I'm speaking to ethical capitalist and director of the Richer Sounds Hi Fi retailer Julian Richer, all about his zero hours justice campaign. Plus, there is a wee look with a new jingle all about just how the government have learned absolutely nothing from the Windrush scandal of two years ago. Yes, that prime comedy subject. Thanks, politics. Maybe next time, instead of just removing people from their families, she could, I don't know, enact some policies on custard pie-throwing or how to correctly pronounce the word lemon, and then we'd all be OK and this podcast might be fun again. Uh Ugh. <laughs> I remember in the late 80s, my younger brother had a number of small plastic soldier and war toys called Zero Hour. My parents weren't happy that he wanted these as they were and still are very anti-war. And the idea that my brother was playing with 1 to 72 scale army dudes worried them that it glorifies violence, even though at best, they're so small they might have just annoyed our cat a bit. Years later, I've realized just how damaging the message that those toys was giving was, um as the name zero hour probably meant they were on unsecured irregular contracts and despite risking death against the b a d brigade yeah, that's what their enemies were called. It was the eighties no one had no one had anything they're, they're, no imagination um it's clear their lives weren't actually valued by their employees. Zero Hours contracts are, much like most war, completely unnecessary and while they're said to provide more flexibility for workers, I'm not sure that's what is considered when you suddenly find yourself without work or payment. I mean that sort of flexibility might be okay if you could also get bill payment flexibility too, childcare flexibility or benefit flexibility. But as all those things remain pretty rigid, the only way Zero Hours jobs make you any more flexible is by contorting you into an ever-pressing situation. Apparently, it means a casual relationship between the employee and their employer. Sure, if you've ever been in a casual relationship, you'll know what it actually means is one of you is mostly bored and lonely and the other screws you whenever they want. While lots of other countries have banned Zero Hour's contracts, sadly in the UK they're still affecting a lot of people. And they were a rather major omission from the big workplace reforms the government is making as part of the Good Work Plan. Which sounds like the sort of policy name a child would come up with if you asked for them to come up with a way to make work better. But then when you check the details, it just had more trips to the zoo on it and nothing else. Although to be fair, they would make a lot of jobs better. The good work plan comes into effect in April of this year, and it's great news if you're an agency worker or you're taking an employee to court for gross oversight. But it appears the biggest gross oversight is the plan's failure to do anything for zero hours workers, and once again, for the foreseeable future, the only guarantee those people will have is a lack of workers' rights. Maybe that's why all those little plastic soldiers were quite so angry and violent. This week, I got to speak to Julian Richard. You might know Julian as the very successful owner of hi-fi and electronics chain Richer Sounds. But what you may not know is that as well as selling music equipment, Julian is also a very sound bloke indeed and has worked hard to treat his employees properly and has even handed over control of his firm into employee ownership. With the backing of the TUC, Julian has now set up the Zero Hours Justice campaign that aims to have zero hours contracts banned in the UK. I asked Julian all about why a lack of job security is so harmful, how you go about banning them when no one in charge seems all that keen to and what exactly an ethical capitalist, as he classes himself, is. He very kindly explained all. Here's Julian. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Julian. It is great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much uh, for having a chat with me. Um, So I suppose the first question I should ask is that a lot of listeners, and a lot of people know that zero-hour contracts aren't great, but they perhaps don't understand why. So why is it that they need to be banned?
1: Okay, well, the first thing, let me make absolutely clear, these are only for people who who don't like them. So some people, I accept... with their own free will, are happy to accept a zero-hour contract. And it's like, you know, some people like to be tortured, God forbid, and they get the pill out of it. That's their, that's their choice. But most people don't. And it's very similar with zero-hour contracts. A small, tiny minority, I reckon, are happy with them. But the great majority have them unilaterally imposed on them. In other words, enforced. And they have no choice and they loathe them. So, if people loathe something, you know, that's a good starting point for, for at least considering whether they should be banned. I'm a great believer that people are treated well, um, they, they perform much better anyway. But I think they're what is so evil about them is that they keep workers on the, on, the, on a leash on a daily basis and not very dissimilar from the days of the docks when dockers would stand on the quayside waiting for a job and if they got picked by a, a boss for the day you know uh, um, they'd be okay if they didn't they and their families would go hungry and I, I see this as a modern day version of that and I can give you some examples of how not only do they cause poverty because it's a race to the bottom in wages it, it hugely increases the power bosses have over their vulnerable employees typically the worst paid in, in in the organization um, and i can give you some examples so not only they cause poverty because of that but also this absolute misery on a daily basis not knowing if workers have got enough money for for literally for food or, or lodging so can i do you mind if i just just ramble on with my three examples because no, no, exactly do, yeah. when people ask me this this is what i say the three examples so first of all they're great sways of the country with no social housing as i'm sure you know um and therefore um um people on zero hour contracts have to go to the uh, rely on the private sector of housing and even decent uh, um uh, property owners landlords you know really struggle to 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 let to zero hour contract workers because they just don't know if they're going to be able to pay the rent you know that's not an unreasonable request for a landlord to look at the bank statements for proof of regular income so it's very difficult for them to get housing so uh, you know, there's a huge shortage, I reckon, of about three million homes of social housing in the country. So you know, where are these people supposed to live? I mean, I've heard stories of care workers sleeping in cars. I mean, how do we feel about that as a society? I mean, I might be a, a, a you know very you know a very fortunate wealthy business person but but I still got a social conscience. I mean this is appalling. So that's one example. The second example, we hear stories. Now, um, um I've set up this zero-hour Justice campaign which we might well go on to talk about uh, and I've invited um uh, uh Ian Hodson to be president of the uh, who's president of the Bakers unit, incidentally and he tells me stories of of women um employees um Desperate for more hours, going to their bosses and say, "Please, please, please, give me more work." And the bosses say to them, "Well, what are you going to do for me, love? You know, absolute crass sexual exploitation of the worst kind." And a third example would be a um, 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 busy, you know, working mums trying to juggle their lives. They arrange childcare, they go to work, and the boss says, "Actually, it's a bit quiet today, love. I think um, you can knock off early. I can't afford to pay you." what are they supposed to do? They've got their childcare to pay, they've earned no money that day. Can you imagine that literally the misery that causes? And and please remember, Britain is only one of only six countries, we're not in the EU anymore, but there are 27 countries there. We're one of only six, so if you add us, that's 28, uh, that even tolerate this this behaviour.
2: Is that right? They're banned in in all those other countries in the EU? Well, as
1: far as I can work out, so Mm -hmm. that is only from what I've gleaned from the web and sort of my own research this is what i understand that we're at the bottom of the pile and we should be ashamed of that and even if the number isn't you know maybe if i got it wrong by one i don't think i have but um you know surely i want people to look at it in isolation i'm not talking about people wanting them out of their own free will I want, i'm talking about people having have been forced on them is this is this a way to behave and is it necessary i think it's lazy bosses who can't be bothered to do rotors or, you know, if they're more sophisticated and thinking about it, it gives them this huge power over their workers, huge power, which I think is unhealthy and unfair and sadistic, you know, on a daily basis.
2: Yeah, absolutely, because they can, uh, you know, the, the staff are always sort of begging them for more work. Uh, their whole lives are dependent on, on their decisions. You get it, you yeah, get Which is awful. And, and is that the main reason that zero-hour contracts, you think, have kind of come in in such a swathe in this country? Is just that it gives more power to, to bosses. Is it is it financially beneficial to them as well?
1: Well, I think yes, and you know, if 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 you look at employees or workers as a factor of production, you know, as machines, as you know, not people, they are a factor of production, and I guess to turn them off on and off like a tap, it, it, it is one way of looking at it. If you're completely inhuman and have no compassion, but I think we're better than that as a society, and we we shouldn't allow it. I mean, I, you know, what do you think?
2: Yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I sort of find it very interesting that, um, you know, we're often told, or I think the argument for zero-hours contract often is that we're, you know, society's changing and we need more flexible hours and people's living standards are more flexible, but people still also have to pay their bills and have to have some sort of security, which...
1: Of course, but this is the difference. If it's free will, if it suits your life, say you've got three jobs and they're all flexible and I'm in completely control of what hours I work when, I can pick the ones I work for, that's a very unusual situation that I'm you know, rarely heard of, if ever. But, you know, most people, we're talking about people here struggling, a million workers we're talking about as well. It's yeah. a big number.
2: It's, that's an absolute massive uh,
1: number. And can I say just something else then, that there's confusion, a bit of confusion, over gig economy workers and zero-hour workers. So, zero, so gig economy workers are people who are self-employed. And, for instance, if you're an Uber driver, you sign on and off when you want to. You have one of flexibility, you buy your own car, and notwithstanding issues Uber may or may not have and what they like to work for and how much they pay, you have a lot of freedom in terms of when you work and when you don't work. A zero-hour contract is where an employee is, is literally locked in. They're handcuffed to this oppressive uh, situation, and if they wanted to leave, are you, did you realize that they lose their job-seeker's allowance? They cannot get that if they leave a, a job of their own free will.
2: So it affects which benefits it, as well. I didn't realise that.
1: That's what I mean. They lose their opportunity to get benefits, which is double evil. They're trapped. Double evil. Yeah, that's really
2: cruel. Cool. I mean, you know, I'm self employed, and, and the bonus of me being self employed is I'm my own boss. I don't have the, exactly. the kind of oppressive different. Of that. So, You're not yeah. trapped.
1: No, exactly. No, no. You get it. You completely get it. Excellent. So do, do you sympathise with my campaign then? Are you with me?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I, I think I wanted to ask you about, you know, specifically about the campaign Zero Hour's Justice, which I think is um, is a brilliant campaign. But also, I find it really interesting, um, and I guess, obviously necessary on your website that you say, you know, that you understand it might be quite hard to get our current government to ban them outright. Um, yeah. So instead, you're proposing specific changes that may help kind of lean towards it or at least make it better. How... How yeah. would they work?
1: Well, we've got some tricks up our up our sleeves. Uh, got a terrific team together, as you do. Um, I invited myself for a cup of tea with uh, Francis Grady, who runs the TUC, and um, I'm completely open-minded. And I'd like to set this stage. I am apolitical, you know, just because I'm like John McDonnell. I've been called all sorts of things, but he's a terrific guy, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I judge people as I find them, and I don't agree with everything he, he believes in. But um, we have a lot of a common belief in terms of you know trying to deal with inequality and injustice i'm sure most of your listeners are the same so i invited myself a tea with Frances anyway and she was very nice and i said i want to help here and she said well yeah anybody who wants to help will help them and she was very gracious and uh, she put together this summit meeting on the 13th of January where I spoke. And I, I can't be, I, I'm one of not very many capitalists who have spoken at the TUC headquarters, Congress House. And uh, again, everyone was very nice to me. Uh, and I invited some press along because I thought, you know, the Morning Star faithfully report what happens and, and, and they wrote it up. Um, and the Mirror again wrote a nice story. But um, um I was very keen to get the Telegraph down and a uh, very nice journalist, the uh, Telegraph, uh, uh, Lizzie said, you know, she's really pleased I invited her, and she wrote a great piece. Uh, and then uh, the Guardian picked it up again, and we had a big story there. And so I'm trying to reach people. You know, I'm trying to not not preach the converted. I love the fact it got in the Telegraph in a positive light. I'm trying to reach bosses, and say so this isn't about confrontation. This isn't about you know uh, 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 being divisive or difficult. This is about you know ju- you know social justice, about caring, and also. What I talk about, we may or may not have time to come on to later. My my book about capitalism, the ethical capitalist, is all about the fact that not only is it the right thing to do, treating people well. Uh, not only do I sleep better at night, um, but my business has flourished in a hugely, hugely difficult environment. Uh, we're, we're we're really successful, and I put. We'll talk about that later if you want to. So that's a bit of the background. So. Um, I spoke at this conference, got really good press, uh, and we'd already planned this campaign. And I've got a great team together. I'm using Thompsons as a solicitors who already work uh, very closely with the TUC. Um, I've got a great friend of mine with, 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 with again huge care for social justice, uh, a guy called Damien Morrison. He's a lawyer as well, uh, very, very keen to help us. I've got one of my colleagues from work, James. Johnson Flint, who's sort of uh, managing it day to day. We've got other people I've pulled in or invited, pulled in in a nasty way. But I read this book, um, one of the books I was going to recommend to your listeners, uh, called Hired by James Bloodworth. And he's wrote the sem- wrote the seminal book on the subject. He he went undercover at Amazon for six months uh, and other businesses and wrote all about it. I thought, well, we've got to have him on the team. Uh, we-, we tracked him down and he's helping us as well. And you- if you go on the website, you'll see he's uh, he's mentioned and-, and writing for us already. So got a great team together. So what we're going to do again, long answer. I'm sorry, long answer to your question is yeah, I'd love to change the book. I call it Doing a Gina. Um, um, a, a, as in Gina Miller and, and, and beat the government but I think it's unlikely I think as citizens we must all do what we can and I've been terribly blessed and I've got a bit of time on my hands because I transferred control of my business into a trust last year uh, I'm, I'm, I've been lucky that I've made a few bob but no kids to leave it to and um, and my wife and I really care so I'd love to you know, put, put some of my uh, um, uh, uh, cash into good causes. So this is one of them. So that's how it all came together. And what we want to do, then, if we can't change the law, what we want to do is pick on cases. So for instance, there are two uh, weaknesses, we think, at the moment that businesses have. So sometimes uh, we know that more women are on zero contracts than men. So if we can prove that uh, it's a gender issue, then the law does protect um, um, uh, uh, those workers if they're being uh, prejudice against, for instance, uh, likewise uh, for reasons of race. If we find out uh, more people on zero contracts in a firm are from an ethnic minority, then again we can say you're picking on these workers. So we do have a an opportunity there for selective litigation. Uh, but what I'd rather do is is, is a bit of you know um, public humiliation. So if we go for um sectors maybe that are paid for by with taxpayers money where we should be you know we will be angry and ashamed if we knew what was going on so i'm thinking of uh i'm thinking of hospitals i'm thinking of museums and art galleries where where the workers are paid for with public money uh you know don't we want better for our public sector workers um even um i'd like to investigate um uh, westminster I'd like to investigate even the royal households. You know, if these institutions are employing people on zero-hour contracts, I'd love to find that out. And dare I say, um, encourage them to change their ways. And if they refuse resolutely, then, of course, we'd have to consider um, embarrassing them on our website and hopefully get picked up by the press and people like yourselves.
2: Yeah, well, those are the institutions that should be setting an example, really. Exactly. So there are
1: low-hanging... We call that the low-hanging fruit. Uh, (laughs) And, of course, if you... Well, you know, it's obvious, as you rightly say, if we pick one university and we we embarrass them, we can then call all the other universities and say, well, hang on, they've changed their ways. Do you want us to pick on you next, buddy? And I know it sounds a bit... Maybe not very nice, but, you know, it's it's a means to an end. You know, we're not going to smash their windows. We're just trying to put some pressure on them. And and why shouldn't they care about their reputation? You know, why shouldn't we expose bad practice? I mean, do you agree with with that, for instance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, you you know, in your opinion, this sort of, uh, in terms of businesses, I suppose, where they could get, um, they might lose custom. Would shaming work the same for public institutions? Do you think it would have an effect?
1: Well... Christian Aid did a survey. I I, I don't know when it was, a couple of years ago, probably, and they said that 85% of the public really care where they where they give their trade, where they where give their custom. Right? The problem is, as consumers, we don't know, do we? We don't know who are the good guys and who are the bad. How do you or I know which universities use zero hour contract workers? Particularly when a lot of these institutions use agencies. So they say, oh no, no, we don't use zero hour contracts, but the agencies they sub their you know the cleaners or security or drivers to. Are, are, are happily getting on with it. So um, um, so what we need is visibility. So one thing I'm doing, and I don't know if I'm allowed to even talk about this today, but um, I'm setting up quite separately, nothing to do with this, but I'm setting up a good business charter to encourage uh, better business behavior. And that is an accreditation scheme. And the idea being... The Good Business Chart abbreviates to GBC. If you have a C2 cafes and one's got a GBC sticker on, this is my dream, by the way, um, if it got picked up widely, that you'd pick the GBC sticker uh, enterprise because you know they, they would care. And within that is an element uh, to deal with zero hour contracts. So, um, okay, so for your, for your listeners, are we able to say we're recording on February the 7th?
0: So yes, it's, can, it's
1: yeah. due to go out in the next, uh, be launched in the next um, within you know weeks. My good business charter. So yes, I've been talking about it for a while. And it has been announced, and there is a website up now.
2: I I just wanted to ask because what you're suggesting sounds brilliant. It sounds a bit like the Living Wage Foundation have got a thing where companies can say, "Well, we pay the living wage," and highlight that they do, which makes you well. Finally, you say that you to support them.
1: Yeah. Funny you say that because we've got ten components. You see, unlike there are other schemes out there, some with over 100 components then you, you you only need an average or a 40 percent pass mark which we didn't agree with so we've got 10 components and businesses will have to tick 10 boxes or they're not going to be allowed in and guess what number one is and that's signing up to the real living wage so we've tied up with them and i absolutely agree that's the most important thing there are other important things there as well but that is absolutely number one
2: and on your on on your website on the zero hours justice website you've got the good business charter sort of uh, you've got three three clauses there that you've put in, which are sort of shifts must be scheduled with at least two weeks' notice. Uh, if they're cancelled with less than two weeks' notice, they still get paid. And workers should have a right to request a contract. Um, and I, I, I guess, I mean, Can I explain that? You? You've done your yeah.
1: homework very well. Can I just explain that, if I may? Yeah, of course. So the, the Goodwin's Charter, I, 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 well, I thought it'd be fantastic to get the CBI involved um, because they have 200,000 businesses as members. And we thought if we could sell it to them in inverted commas, they would they would hopefully invite their members to join anyway. Simon Fox, who's our chairman, who used to run the Reach. Newspaper group and a great supporter and friend said, "How can I help?" And he got brought the CBI to the table. It's actually a conference call, and I was deeply sceptical because obviously, if their members are going to have to pay the real living wage, they might not be terribly enthusiastic if they weren't doing so already. But the the CBI were terribly supportive and positive, and they're actually on our board. So the deputy director general, Josh Hardy, is a trustee of the Good Business Charter. Now. I wanted to get rid of 0 contracts completely, but as in life, one has to compromise. So we came up with this compromise, which he got past his members, which I thought was brilliant, because to to be fair, you know, most people can manage if they're given two weeks notice of shifts. None of this turning up for work and being sent home early nonsense, and if they cancel the shift, as you rightly picked up, less than two weeks, they're going to get paid anyway, and he got the CBI, he persuaded the CBI to agree to that, and that's now part of our good business charter components, as you rightly spotted. Well done.
2: The Windrush scandal was exposed two years ago. Something that, at the time, then Home Secretary, and definitely smokes a cigarette then eats it while it's still alight, Amber Rudd, said was due to an admin error. Which I mean, it wasn't. I've made admin errors and, say, double booked a gig. I've never made an admin error so bad that a lot of people were wrongly detained and deported. If you're that shitter admin, just say yes to help from that little paperclip guy. Seriously, save some lives. The Home Office admitted that 164 people that it knew of were affected, and it is known that at least 11 died while homeless in the foreign countries that they were deported to. This was all part of the government's hostile environment policy brought in in 2012 by human stalactite Theresa May, who was Home Secretary at the time. The point was to, well, make things hostile for illegal immigrants in the UK because rather than make it easier to reapply for a visa, it's much better that we just chase you with burning pitchforks and say it's your fault that a global crash happened. Anyway, that all involved raising fees to apply for Leave to Remain, something that sounds like a Brexit teaser trailer but wasn't, and landlords and NHS staff having to carry out ID checks and of course those racist vans, which are like normal white vans but somehow more racist. But from as early as 2013, the government were told that many from the Windrush generation were being treated as illegal immigrants. The Windrush generation were people who came over to the UK from the Caribbean as part of a drive to increase the British workforce before 1973. Lots were placed in detention centres, many were told that they had to leave the UK immediately and all of this meant those affected couldn't get jobs or healthcare as a result. Basically, thanks for working so hard for us for 50 years, but go away now as we need to appear even more racist for the voters. Many of the Windrush generation didn't have documentation as they came over in the 50s when paper just wasn't a thing and it was too hard to keep records on Slate or something. Sorry, I mean, they had London cards. But the Labour government in 2009 decided to have these destroyed as a way to clean up paper records and then the coalition government in 2010 actually did it. Lots of people warned both governments that this might lead to later issues but neither were known for actually listening to people, were they? So it's not a surprise. This meant when those who were accused of illegal immigration were asked for proof of their years in the UK, they just didn't have it. It seemed very little care was being taken that what the Home Office was doing was the right thing, and it mainly seemed like they were just working to deportation targets, something that Amber Rudd denied the Home Office did, till The Guardian leaked that they had targets of 12,800 enforced returns in 2017-18, and then she said, oh, actually, they did do that, and then she resigned. Because taking responsibility is what the Conservatives do. Then, ears on a balloon for a head, Saji Javid was made Home Secretary, made up some tosh about how, wow, it could have been his parents that had been deported, and then said he'd make right by the Windrush generation, and it took over a month just to contact three of the people that had been wronged. By June 2018, just under 7,000 potential Windrush cases were identified, and 1,600 were given documentation, and commercial flights deporting people to the Caribbean were paused, like you do in a game that you're temporarily distracted from and hope to get back to as soon as everyone stops annoying you. But it was discovered at the beginning of February last year that the government had already started rescheduling deportation flights to Jamaica, claiming everyone on them was convicted of very serious crimes such as rape or murder. But one of them was found to be registered blind and epileptic and having served a four-month sentence for assault. So not only had that person already served their sentence and had the punishment for it, but then they were also being sent to a country they had absolutely no support in. Though fair play to the Home Office, deporting someone who's black, had a conviction and a disability is basically a uh, jackpot for the Conservative Party. If he'd also run a small business or, you know, was a student as well, they'd probably have held a party as they waved him goodbye. Then at the end of February, flights were stopped again after the Jamaica High Commissioner said there were to be no more until the Home Office published its investigation into what happened. So, skip to today, and not enough has been done to apologise or compensate the victims of the Windrush scandal and their families. But the Windrush Lessons Learned review was due to be released at the end of March, overseen by the HM Inspector of Constabulary, Wendy Williams. It's currently meant to be undergoing maximalisation, which is when the report gets thrown off a yacht and no one mentions it again and hopes it goes away. Sorry, I mean, where those that get criticised in it get to respond before it's published. But deportation started again this month before the review was due to be published, with again the Home Office justifying it by saying that everyone on board had done terrible criminal things. But one of the cases is a young man who served seven of a 15-month sentence five years ago for a single drug-related offence. All of his family are in the UK and he's only been to Jamaica once before. So why is he being sent there? Now, obviously, people that are being deported because they have a criminal conviction is separate to people that came over to the country because they're part of the Windrush generation and have been mistaken for being illegal immigrants. But Labour MP and squirtle but big and sad David Lammy leaked some of the pages of the review into the Windrush scandal and it recommends that no one who came to the UK as a child should be deported. David Lammy says he knows of at least five who are currently detained and due to be put on a flight and they'd come to the UK as children. One of whom was born in the UK to a Windrush mum and six that have indefinite leave to stay. The Home Office isn't saying exactly he'll be on the flight chartered to go this week because they've made details as secretive and untransparent as possible. So the worry is with these deportations, they're making exactly the same mistakes that led to the Windrush scandal in the first place. Campaigners had managed to save some people As the detention centres many were being held in Colnbrook and Harmonsworth Had a nearby O2 phone mask that had been down for a week Meaning no one in there has had adequate access to legal advice Typical O2 And then the only way you can fix it is by online chat Yeah nice one guys How am I meant to do that? Detention action campaigners took this to the High Court and lost, but the Court of Appeal has agreed that those without access to legal advice must be removed from the flight. Although, as I record this, I've just seen someone tweeting saying that it's going to still leave this evening, so it may have already gone by the time you hear this, regardless of the High Court decision. So what happens next? Well, the Conservatives are insisting that those complaining that they're just deporting whoever they like have lost the plot and are doing shrill virtue signalling. That you can't just send people to a country they don't know, have no connections to and mostly shouldn't have to take responsibility for people who've been brought up in or in the case of the Windrush generation were invited to live in the UK because our government has now decided they don't want to look after them anymore. How can you guarantee your right to live here if having a right to live here isn't actually enough? Why punish people who've already been through the prison system and then get deported after starting work again and family life? Is this our post-Brexit trading system plan? Other countries send us food and we send them bewildered, upset, unfairly detained people to die on their streets. If it is, I'm really not sure it'll be that popular, especially with the US. So, who's to blame? Well, I mean, it's quite easy this week, really, isn't it? It's obviously years and years and years of home office cruelty and neglect, starting with Theresa May, then Amber Rudd, then Saji Javid and now old glass shards for a face Pretty Patel, as well as their respective PMs and parties who advocated it all and the people that happily voted for that. Although, it's not that easy, because maybe I've got all of this very wrong. And actually, it's entirely Boris Johnson's fault, as he cares for all those people being deported so much that he just wants to treat them like they're his own children. This is a really sad case. Uh, I don't, I've probably not managed to put anywhere near enough jokes in there because it's miserable. Um, do follow the Detention Action um, group who have been campaigning in the High Courts uh, to get people removed from the flight. You can find them at detentionaction.org.uk or at Detention Action on Twitter. And Black Activists Against Rising Cuts who have several petitions against the deportations and several planned protests too. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at B-A-R-A-C-U-K. Do follow them. Do help out if you can. And now back to Julian. And I, I suppose I wanted to ask, like, what, why are you doing this? Because you mentioned earlier that you know you're six. You're no. I'm going to have to redo that. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that you're a successful businessman. Your business done very well, and um, but you've. You know, you uh, you've written a book called Ethical Capitalist, and you you care, and you're doing it because you care, and that's that's really unusual. Um, so what what sort of why do you stand out? That's I find it really odd that you're the exception rather
1: than the rule. Very sweet, very sweet. Well, first of all, let me tell you: on the first page of the book, it does. I do confess to being deeply flawed. I'm not ashamed. I just <laughs> want to get that out there. I've done we many all, things, are. we all are. <laughs> we all are. Okay. I mean, why are you doing this, right? You care. I guess you could do other things, but I mean, uh, so let me. First of all, not all multi-millionaires are bad people. And um, I had a terrific response when I did my trust. I had people writing to me saying, good on you. So I'm not the only one out there. I think we're a small group, but I think we're a growing group. And I guess the reason I'm on your program and I've, uh, you know, before that, I just did an interview with the Mail on Sunday. You know, I'll speak to anyone who listened to me. I'm not political. I think it's really important to stay apolitical. What do I want? I want a better society. I think there's good in everybody from all political persuasions. There's never been a perfect leader or a perfect political party. And for the things I'm doing, I want to bring, you know, cross-party support. Otherwise, you know, immediately I'll put the backs up of the rest of them. So, you know, i will perfectly happy to have a cup of tea with John McDonald. I'm perfectly happy to have a cup of tea with Boris. So uh, I haven't done that yet, by the way, but I'd love to do that in due course cause what I'm talking about should be, is is apolitical, it's about injustice, it's about creating a better society. So uh, why do I do it? Why do I care? Maybe I've had some good role models in life. I certainly have, feel compassion. I can't walk, if I see someone fall down in the street, I can't walk past them. I mean, and, and most people can't. And just because I've been very lucky that I've been successful in business doesn't mean I'm a monster. Indeed, a lot of other business people like that they, uh, feel the same. And the reason I wrote the book is I got sick and tired of reading bad stuff about business people because they're the ones that get the headlines and I, I felt actually you know they're wrong the bad guys and I wanted the public or other business people to be encouraged by what I felt I wanted to say.
2: And so what does it mean being an ethical capitalist? What does that require? Because you mentioned earlier that you put um, your your company's profits into a trust and it was that an employee, employee trust? It's
1: called an employee ownership trust yeah so I sell the shares I sold 60% into a trust I mean paid back over several years if the company doesn't make the money or goes, by, God forbid, I won't get anything, that's fine. I've had some money already. Um, the first payment was £9.2 million. Pounds. It has to be valued. The, the, in the, the HMRC have to agree the valuations. So it all has to be done above board. But the first payment, which is the biggest payment by far, was £9.2 million, And I gave immediately back 3.9 million to the employees on the basis of £1,000 for each year of service to every employee. And I think that it's fair to say they loved me for a few seconds. <laughs> it didn't. I'm sure it didn't last. But um, they're wonderful people. They deserved every penny, and I do it again tomorrow. So that that got a lot of press. I don't know if you picked it up, but um, there was this was like May last year, and and what was so nice about it from a political point of view, you know, the left the left wing. Uh, organizations said uh, including John McDonald tweeted and said, You know this is capitalism that, that we can work with you know and the Tories Institute of directors on the right wing and the c b i all said you know that uh, this is capitalism we can work with, so you know this isn't a a non political story this is this is it, look Capitalism is based on greed, um, um, but it, it, you know it's the one the system that works at the moment. I'd love there to be a better system, but I haven't yet discovered one that stood the test of time, so we're stuck with it. So what I argue is, you know, we need responsible capitalism. We we, we all want goods and services. It's very very important. As I say, it's the system that seems to work. Um, but capitalists must remember uh, they de- they depend very much on the state for support, and I'm talking about an obligation of the state for. Uh, uh, not only the consumers in in the society that that buy from them, but also the infrastructure that they benefit from. I'm talking about the roads they drive their lorries on, the uh, the, the police that protect their property, uh, the schools that teach their staff to read and write, the hospitals that fix their workers when they get sick. So, um, you know, to, nick, to to take money out, you know, through uh, 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 crafty tax avoidance schemes uh, and using loopholes and squirrelling it away into Monaco and thinking that's really funny and clever. You know, those days hopefully are over. Certainly we're moving away from that now. If you go to Denmark, you know, it's completely socially unacceptable to to, to avoid tax. And, um, and, and people are vilified quite rightly for that with very strict um, um, and penalties. So, you know, that's where I think we should be. I think if I can just tell you what the book's about, the first part of the book is then um, by being a responsible capitalist and, and, and treating people decently, you know, not exploiting staff, not ripping off customers, paying one's tax. As I said before, it's not only the right thing to do, but your business will flourish. And I can demonstrate that in my very, very tough industry sector that I'm in. So I haven't read this in a book. I haven't been to Harvard and reported back to you. I've actually done it. And I'm one of the few people willing to criticize capitalism, I think, as far as I know, that that's actually, you know, a capitalist, a reasonably successful capitalist. So I, I do feel I'm in a, Privileged position, but also I therefore have a bit more authority because you know I'm not. This isn't party political. So the first part of the book is telling people, um, explaining that to people, and recommending they try it. The second part of the book is for people the non-believers that won't get it, don't get it, just enjoy doing what they're doing. And 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 for them, the state needs to be much tougher. Because don't forget, these people have a lot of resource, a lot of money, the best advisors. If there's a tricky, crafty loophole to get out of pay, paying tax, you know, certain people will, will, will use that. And if I can tell you about tax avoidance for a moment, have you heard of um, the tax gap in society? Do you know what that is? That's the amount that's squirreled away um, by these people through aggressive tax avoidance. And that is estimated to be about 50 billion. That's B for Bravo fifty billion pounds a year, possibly more, I set up an organization called Taxwatch Watch specifically to um um uh, investigate and expose aggressive tax avoidance. And we we really think it's more than that. And we're putting together an academic panel of 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 of, of you know the great and good to to confirm that. But we confidently expect it to be more than fifty billion a year just in this country. Now when you think the entire prison service costs less than three billion a year. Now you know the prison service is bursting at the seams at the moment we desperately need to invest in that if we want our offenders to be rehabilitated and treated decently but can you imagine the good that 50 billion could do if we could get it back you know if we could retrieve it and stop it leaking out of the country and um, um you know that's what i think we need to do as an absolute priority and uh, um before the good guys pay any more tax that should be the absolute focus and then talking about taxation if i may just dip into that um, hornets nest uh, I think taxation on income should be reduced. I think people who go to work should pay less tax and people like me who are wealthy should pay more tax because at the moment we've seen no rise in real incomes for the last 10 years when you take into account inflation. and Yet the country has got richer, so all the extra money has gone to the wealthy and that's increasing the inequality in our society. I'm not suggesting for a moment that people should all earn the same. Uh, I'm talking about the inequality, the differential should be reduced, such as it is in countries like Scandinavia and Japan, but not in Britain or America, where it's getting bigger and bigger. So, sorry, long long sentence that. Is that the sort of stuff you're interested in? Yeah, yeah. To hear I about? mean,
2: I, I think it's, you know, what's fascinating is that you're, you're saying things as a successful businessman that, are, that I and many other people I know think, and I think a lot of the listeners agree with and think. And I suppose my question for you, and you, I, you might not have an answer for this, is, but how come you feel like that and you sort of act responsibly with your business and yet it's not the norm is it I mean as part of it come from listening to employees do you stay sort of grounded and aware of the world is it that maybe other heads of businesses aren't so aware of the things around them i I just find it it's a weird, good question yeah you know well, you're, you're expressing humanity and it's wonderful <laughs>
1: well, very kind well as I've explained I'm not a saint. And I've done things I regret, and I have upset people. I'm obviously putting my best foot forward today for you. But, um, okay, so a few things, if I may. I've had some really good role models. My parents met at Martha Spencer in the Kilburn store, uh, and and they would come home uh, uh, and tell me as a very young child about the wonderful Chairman Simon Marks, who would turn up with his Rolls-Royce and chauffeur, and the first thing he did was check the staff toilets were clean. And the second thing he did was check the staff were getting a hot hot meal in, in the canteen at lunchtime. And, you know, that, that I remember, that was motherhood apple pie for me. Uh, and then I went to school. I was very lucky that my grandfather left some money for my education. I was very... A, a privilege to go to a boarding school in Bristol called Clifton College and the housemaster there, can you believe, in a, in a boys' public school full of mostly rich kids, was a socialist housemaster called Ernest Polak, a wonderful wonderful man and he would go to, his idea of a holiday was to go to South Africa and demonstrate against apartheid. You know, these big Africans, Afrikaans farmers would beat the hell out of him and he'd come back with, with, with bruises and da-da-da and tell us about what, what he'd done for his holidays and, and he made an, you know, a big impression on me and you know these these sort of things when you're a kid, you know, have, make, make a big uh, impression. And and I don't know, I guess, like you, you, you sound a really nice guy. We haven't met in, in the flesh, but, um, you know, I'm sure you care. You wouldn't pass someone who fell down in the street. And a lot of people wouldn't. And I think just because I've enjoyed making money, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder from school because I was the poorest kid in, in the house, you know. Uh, and I was determined to make money. But I, it wasn't without conditions, you know. I, I've always felt it's important to... To care, And I've met people with a social conscience and they've inspired me as well. So I guess I'm just very lucky that I've had, you know, good role models around me that have encouraged me and uh, I'm not a same.
2: Well, hopefully your um, experience and I mean, your track record as well, hopefully will inspire other people to at least change, you know, change to, to be a bit more ethical in well, how they do things.
1: Yes, that's what I'm hoping. I'll just say that for years I kept my head down. You know, I didn't want to do, um, uh, uh, I w- didn't want to get in the public eye and get involved in any of that or w- what I'm doing now. So I wrote a book called The Richer Way 25 years ago about how to how to treat people, which was I wouldn't I wouldn't sign up with the publisher um, because they wanted me to do on you know press and and signings. So I, it, it became a bit of a cult book. It sold 50,000 copies, and then Penguin tracked me down and said when I wanted my ethical capitalist book. Printing. They said, "Well, we want that as well. It's an evergreen; it'll sell for another 25 years." And I, uh, uh, I gave it to them. And, and, and because I've now got something that I feel re- that's really important, and I feel a little bit qualified to talk about, I've come out the woodwork, and I'm willing to to do the press stuff. I mean, I don't do telly, but I'm very happy to do podcasts or press or um, radio. So, my friends also have got a great face for radio, so I'll take their word for it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect, that's exactly why I do a podcast as well. Um, so fair, yeah. Um, so I suppose the most important question I should ask you is how can listeners help the zero hours justice campaign? What are you looking for? You know, people, I mean, if there are business uh, owners listening to this, they know what they can do. Um, you've explained that, but if they're just ordinary people and workers, absolutely. what can they do to help out the campaign?
1: Well, absolutely, I'd love them to, to, um, to to go on the website to um, uh, register if they know if they they, or they know people who are suffering some of the the, the injustices I've been talking about um, 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 let us know you can you can put it online there on the website Uh, if you want to offer support in any way I mean I'm funding it so uh, I'm not asking for money but if you know if you're a lawyer and want to help maybe or or, I I don't know if people like the sound of what we're doing get in touch for sure. If, if, if your listeners are working for any of the institutions I've been talking about and they are on a zero-hour contract and they feel they they deserve to be exposed because it's just not right, we can deal with that. You can talk to us anonymously. We can then question the institution and get them to tell us whether it's true or not that we've heard on the grapevine. So all that stuff would be fantastic for whistleblowers. That would be really handy for us to know.
2: Yeah, that's I, I had. A, you've got a contact form on your website, haven't you? So that people can Absolutely. just do it straight through that. Fantastic. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, and one last question. Thanks again for for joining me today. Um,
1: very welcome.
2: One last question that I ask all the interviewees that we have on this show, uh, simply with the aim of spreading knowledge and and getting more, uh, information out there. Um, apart from uh, yourself and your campaign, um, is there anyone that that you go to who's writing or campaigns or you know, websites or books? Would you recommend that listeners check out on workers' rights, or just how on anything you like? Yeah.
1: Uh, yes, I got a couple. I mean, obviously, if anyone's interested in responsible capitalism, I hope they'll pick up a copy of *The Ethical Capitalist*. <laughs> Sorry, but you've already mentioned that. But more importantly, um, uh, the book I mentioned before by James Bloodworth, hired, uh, is a great steer on this subject, uh, particularly about this subject that really inspired me. Uh, the Great Tax Robbery by Richard Brooks again a terrific book um if you're interested in, if you, uh listeners are interested in tax avoidance um i also read a great book called um, called to account by margaret hodge uh, which, who was the first female chair of the Public Accounts Committee, a uh, fascinating book about wasting government, also talking about tax avoidance. Uh, and if, you, if we're talking about podcasts, probably don't want to mention the competition, but um, uh, Reasons to be Cheerful by Jeff Lloyd-Ed Miliband Obviously, obviously not, nothing like as good as yours, Tina, but if people have listened to yours and they're bored, then they might <laughs> like to listen to that as well. I, th- I find that, that stimulating.
2: Many thanks to Julian for being on the podcast. Uh, You can find the Zero Hours Justice website at zerohoursjustice.org with the contact page on there featuring a survey. um, They're asking anyone on Zero Hours to fill in, as well as a form to contact them if you want to anonymously let them know about work injustices. Julian's book, The Ethical Capitalist, which I'm about halfway through and really enjoying at the moment, is available at all virtuous, good, morally ambiguous and downright dastardly bookshops, as is his first book, The Richer Way, which he mentioned in our interview too. You can also find TaxWatch, which Julian helped set up at taxwatchuk.org, and he did jokingly remind me off-record that if you need a hi-fi or home cinema, to head to Richer Sounds. But seriously, uh, do support ethical businesses like his, as it's important to show that treating workers fairly and properly can equal success. I haven't actually had a hi-fi in years. I do really miss it. Instead, we've got these tiny Bluetooth speakers that my daughter's thrown across the room so many times that most music we now listen to sounds as if it's underwater. Um, There's no way that she could lift a massive subwoofer, is there? I should have really thought that through. Should have bought a proper one. Uh, All the links for all those things will be in the pod blurb and on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website too. Who else shall I interview on this podcast? Is there a campaign you know of, a burning issue that needs addressing? And no, I don't mean climate change, but I also do mean climate change. Is there someone that you think would be valuable to hear from? Let me know. Uh, you can do that via at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on the website or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not ask Democratic candidate Pete Butchigegg to contribute money towards an app that says what the most popular suggestion for a guest might be and they'll just keep saying Pete butchigig and I won't be able to book him as, among many other reasons, the stress of pronouncing his surname is just too much. It's too much. So, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. According to the pod stats, uh, very few of you make it to this bit of the podcast, so I might start offering some sort of industry secrets for those of you that do. Is that a good idea? Right, OK, let's try it. Uh, first up for you audio completists, did you know that if you can do this with your fingers, yeah, this, yeah, you can see it, then that means you're part dinosaur. Yeah, that you're glad you stayed now, right? T? Hello? T? Anyway, whether you're listening or not, thank you for um, listening, unless you're not listening. No, thank you. Wait, hang on. Oh, this is complicated. Look, please do recommend this show to other people who like podcasts, or maybe don't, but might, or maybe might not, but there's an exception to every rule, right? Give the show a review on your pod app of choice and throw me a couple of quid for a coffee at the Kofi or Patreon sites, if you can. And if you can't, why not think of me next time you see someone else having a coffee? Because, you know, it's the thought that counts. Thanks to Acast for show hosting, my brother the Last Skeptic for the musics, Cat Dave for the linear liner note typing up and Mushy Bees for all the artwork. This will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces a new infrastructure project every time someone wants to question what's happening with any of his election promises, resulting in the UK spending its entire supply of money building a tram from Inverness to the Faroe Islands and giant monkey bars from Middlesbrough all the way to Oslo. Bye! This week's podcast was brought to you by Home Office Flights. Want a cheap holiday? Can't afford to go? Why not visit us at the Home Office and if you're not completely white and at some point didn't return a library book, then we'll burn your passport on the spot and give you an all-expenses-paid trip to the Commonwealth country we're going to hazard a bad guess at that your ancestors were from. No upfront costs apart from legal fees. Home Office Flights, for when you want to get away from it all, and we want you to get away from us too.